Well, good morning to all of you across our campuses this morning. I've had a chance to meet you personally. My name is Dave Ripper, and I serve here as our pastor of Young Adult Ministries. And over the last three years that we've lived here in Boston, believe it or not, our last name gets misinterpreted sometimes. One of my wife's clients came up to her and said, your name is so cute. It's Aaron Ripper. It's kind of like Kelly Ripper. And my wife had to disappoint her by saying, it's actually Aaron Ripper, kind of like Jack the Ripper. (laughs) But I'm still just as friendly. (laughs) Well, it's good to be with you as we continue our Advent series, Let There Be, as we explore the Advent theme of light, Christ's light, which overcomes darkness. So far in our series, we've seen and looked at the distant light that people have longed for and hoped for, and that was fulfilled in Christ. We've also looked at the inner light of Christ that we are to let in and to let shine out through our lives. And today we'll be looking at a new kind of light that you might not be familiar with. It's not new, but it's been around, but we don't always know it. And it's called Golden Hour Light. Golden Hour Light. And now uh, it's kind of this light is a foretaste of all that is to come. Now this morning I might not feel all that Christmassy and Adventy at different points, but I promise you this message is central to what Christmas and Advent is all about. Now golden hour can occur two different times on any given day, just after the sunrise and the hour just before sunset. It's the brilliant glowing light that we see when the rays of the sun start to stream perpendicular, sorry, parallel to the Earth's surface. Here are a couple images to give you a picture of what golden hour is all about. It's here that we see just how glorious and glowing the light of God can sometimes be. Another name that photographers give to golden hour is magic hour because everything seems to have this enchanting, otherworldly quality to it. It can make what we would consider a bland scene burst forth with life. It reminds us that there is more going around us than we normally would notice. Now, one of the ways that photographers capture golden hour or magic hour is by opening wide the part of the camera called the aperture. It is essentially the piece of the camera that allows light to enter in. Here's an image showing a wide aperture letting a lot of light in versus a narrow aperture, which lets, as you can see, only a small amount of light in. Now, think for a moment if your life as if it contained an aperture. How much of Christ's light are you letting into your life today? Which of these lenses look more like your life and relationship to God? How could the aperture of your soul be opened wider to let Christ's light in? This Advent, I invite you to open wide to Christ's light. Now, photography is one of my personal favorite hobbies, and I love getting the chance to photograph golden hour light anytime I get the chance. And one of my favorite golden hour pictures that I've ever taken is of our dog, Howdy. And here's a picture of him, and he was like a little puppy. I know, isn't he so cute? How many of you guys want one of those for Christmas? Any kids out there want one of those? Yeah. One of the girls in our youth group back in Colorado said when she saw this picture, I just want to dunk him in my coffee. (laughs) And I said, there's a place you can do that. It's called Dunk Him Donuts. (laughs) 
Now, one of the reasons photographers love to shoot at golden hour is because everything seems to look better and more glorious in that golden hour light, including people. There's kind of an indescribable aliveness about people in this light. It's almost like the fullness of human worth can be seen when someone is standing in golden hour light. Recently, I had my portrait taken in golden hour light, and I'll let you see how much better I look in that light. (laughs) Don't you think I'm looking fabulously in this picture? Mm. Now, one of my favorite golden hour experiences uh, of seeing and taking in this light was last year when we led a mission trip to Ecuador with our missionary partners, Bruce and Cherith Ridback, who are just amazing people. During the day, we helped dig a trench that would help uh, provide a pipeline for the new water system that was being constructed to help this little village up in the Andes Mountains. Uh, about 90 families have clean water for the first time. Just a really cool project. And in the afternoons, we'd get to put on a vacation Bible school for their kids. And one day, we had a lot of outdoor activities planned, but sad it was raining and we were kind of stuck inside and just trying to burn some time and and when we were caught by surprise when the rain ended up clearing out suddenly the clouds started to move away and the most brilliant glowing light we had ever seen started to shine right into the windows of the place we were the kids immediately lost control and started running outside let's play you know vamanos here we go and as we went outside it was like the most glorious moment we wanted to open up not only the apertures of our cameras but of our very lives to take it all in here are a couple of pictures i took one of us playing soccer together, and then this great picture of these children just glowing in the light. I remember quoting this one uh, part of Gerard Manley Hopkins' poem that said, For Christ plays in 10,000 places, lovely in limbs and lovely in eyes not his, to the Father through the features of men's faces. It wasn't hard at all to see Jesus in every person that we encountered that day. It was such an amazing and meaningful experience. But then something suddenly occurred again that caught us all by surprise. Now, all all week long, we had been hearing the rumors about this huge mountain called Chimborazo that was 20,000 feet high that could be seen off in the distance. But because of the clouds, we never got a glimpse of it. Until we started to hear some of the kids yell, Chimborazo, Chimborazo. And they went running up to the roof of this, uh, this, this school and ended up getting the most glorious picture of this mountain that we've ever seen. My friend Joe took this image of Chimborazo, 20,000 feet up. The whole experience in golden hour moment was if Psalm 19 was singing out to us right before us. The heavens are declaring the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. It was like the Old Testament blessing that says, May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you. It was like God was smiling at us. It was the kind of moment we wanted to capture and take with us because it was that beautiful and meaningful. But that golden hour, sadly, lasted less than an hour. I bet for most of us, we could describe a moment like that, maybe a golden hour of our own, that we wish could have just lasted forever. Maybe it was that Caribbean vacation that you were on while it was the thick of winter back here in Boston and you were out lounging while your friends back here were suffering. Or maybe it was that, uh, that one year in school where you had the great teacher and just those good friends and everything seemed to be perfect and you wish you never had to move on from there. 
Or maybe it was like those wonder years of childhood playing football out in the streets or whatever girls do when they're young. I don't know. <laughs> playing with the boys. Or maybe your golden hour moment happened around Christmas time. Maybe it was when your whole family and friends were together and, and it was that year that everyone actually made it. Or maybe it was that year that everyone was there and they actually all got along. Or maybe your golden hour time you wish you could hold on to were those years that your grandparents were, were still around. It's amazing when you start to unpack the boxes of ornaments and decorations that you start to smell those scents that you haven't thought of or smelled for about a year and they seem just to bring you back to those early days that you wish you could go back to, don't they? But while we wish we could make these moments last, we can't. Just as we can't clear the clouds away to let the golden hour light burst forth at any moment, we can't control when these things occur or happen. We can't make them last. There's endings to them. But what if there was a world in which golden hour was the way things always were? What if there was a world in which those good old days were the good now days, the eternal days that went on forever and ever and only got better and never got boring? Wouldn't you want to do whatever it would take to live in that world? Wouldn't you want to be there in that kind of existence? Well, during Advent, we are not only remembering the birth of our Savior Jesus when he came, but during Advent, we also look ahead to when he is coming back. Advent isn't just about the wreaths and the candles and the manger as much as it is remembering that just as God fulfilled his promise of sending Jesus the Messiah, so he's going to keep his promise of sending Jesus again. And so today, I'd like for us to think about what life is going to be like when Christ returns. I want us to use our imaginations a bit to just think about what life will be like then. And if you have your Bibles with me, I invite you to turn to Revelation 22, the very last chapter of the very last book of the Bible, to help that frame our imaginations a bit. And my hope today is that each and every one of us would leave here with an undying hope, because we know the great truth that our God is not done yet. God's not done yet. May that enable your souls to be strengthened, I hope and pray. And so just as God's not done yet, neither am I. So if you would, turn with me to Revelation 22. Here's verses 1 through 5. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign with him forever and ever. Now, crucial to understanding this part of the Bible, the last portion of it, is to understand the Bible as a whole. And so I'd like to help us understand how the entire Bible fits together here with this ending of the Bible. So to do that, I thought I'd bring along one of my personal Bibles here that you can check out today. And 
It's a little large, but I think we can help figure this out. Here we go. Let's see. Thank you. What can I say? I like big Bibles, and I cannot lie. It's amazing the stares you get at coffee shops these days, isn't it? People just make a big deal about when you read the Bible in public. So to help us understand the Bible story, I want to use four words that will help us today. Creation, fall, redemption, and completion. Creation, fall, redemption, and completion. Let's begin Genesis 1 through 2 with creation. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This is where the good news of the gospel actually begins. It's not just with Jesus, but it's with the fact that God exists, is real, is living, he's active. It's good news because it means that we don't have to fend for ourselves to make sense of life. It's not left up to our own minds to construct a philosophy of life that could work. No, God is here. He is with us. And any attempt that people have made to try and make sense out of life and live in a coherent fashion apart from God has failed every single time. The outcome of trying to live life believing that God is not real, if you do it in a consistent fashion, it's going to be leading you to despair. And to many, it's led them to the brink of suicide. But the good news is, is that God is real, that he exists. And in the beginning, he made everything that we see. He said that all that he created, just as this painting shows, was good. It is good. He made mankind and he put us in the garden, made us in his image. And part of the responsibility he gave to us as image bearers of God was that he created us with the capacity to rule and to reign and have dominion over life here on earth. He gave us that responsibility. Part of what it means to be made in God's image is that you have, have been given a genuine say for life here on this earth. There's a realm or domain in which you have actually been given a say. And so when we use that for God's purposes and not our own, things occur the way they are supposed to. But when we use that rule, that power that God has given us, that freedom for our own end instead of for his, that's when things start to fall apart. And that's what happened here in Genesis 3. This is called the fall, where we fell from the glory of God, the state that we had, and we decided to reach out and choose something for our own purposes, reaching out for that fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil to satisfy us, to have our way instead of God's. And from there, things did not turn out the way they were intended. We ended up finding ourselves more removed from God. We found that our relationships with others are not the way they're supposed to be. The relationship that we have with the world itself is not right. And the relationship that we have even with ourselves isn't the way it's meant to be. The fall is the beginning of suffering. Before then, life was good. Things were the way God intended but with the introduction of sin came suffering and death and isolation. I can only imagine that Adam and Eve would have wanted nothing more than to try and do whatever they could to get back to that garden, to that state when they were reigning with God. But there's nothing that they could do, just like there's nothing we could do, to get back in that right relationship with him. They needed someone to make things right. And that someone we, of course, know is Jesus. 
Jesus came to bring redemption, to deliver us from our fallen state, to deliver us from all of the addictions that we've had to living selfishly. He came to live the life that we never could have lived. And that's what we remember and celebrate here at Christmas, that God himself took on human form by being born of the Virgin Mary. He was born and walked on this actual earth in real space, in real time. It literally happened. And he lived that life that we never could have lived for ourselves fully obeying God's commands, living life as it was fully intended to be lived. And not only did he do that, but he took the place that we deserve to be on the cross so that by the shedding of his blood, the punishment that he underwent for us, we could be freed, we could be forgiven, and we could have a chance at being redeemed to have new life again. God set in motion this redemptive plan as it was initiated here through Christ. Jesus makes redemption possible for each and every story and each and every person through his simple invitation, follow me. Follow me is not so much of a command as it is a gift. It's a gift to get in on what God's doing and setting the world right. His kingdom has come, but it's not yet completed, which is what brings us to Revelation the completion of all that we see. Revelation reveals that God's not so much going to wipe out everything that we experience here on this earth and do something radically new as much as he is going to bring fulfillment and completion to all that we see and experience. It's going to be the way it's always supposed to be. And Revelation reveals that God's scripture is being completed in some powerful and unique ways. I'd like for us to look at a handful of these together here as we look back at Revelation 22, 1 through 5, and see how these words complete the story of God. As it begins, it says, There's a river of water, of life, bright as crystal that flows from the throne of God. This completes what was begun in the garden in Genesis, a river flowing out of Eden. Ezekiel picks up on this image as well in his Old Testament prophecy where he says, everything will live where the river goes. I love that. In Revelation, we see the completion of this tree of life producing 12 kinds of fruit in the healing of the nations. In Genesis, of course, we have the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And Ezekiel says the fruit of this tree that he's prophesying about will be for food and their leaves for healing. I cannot wait for the healing of nations. Can't you? And it says there's 12 kinds of fruit, which is symbolic that God's work has been going on now for years and years. We remember the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles. This is the fulfillment of that. In Revelation, we see that no longer will there be anything accursed. In Genesis 3, the earth itself, we're told, was punished for Adam and Eve's sin that the earth is not the way it's supposed to be. All these natural disasters that we experience, that is not how things are originally designed. Romans 8 says that the creation itself groans with longing and expectation for Christ to return and that creation itself would be redeemed. In Revelation, we see the completion of this thread throughout Scripture of the sacrificial lamb, the Passover lamb, the, the lamb on the Day of Atonement, and Jesus as the suffering Lamb of God among us. And then in Revelation, it says that we will see Jesus face to face. 
In 1 Corinthians 13, which is often read at weddings, love is patient and kind, it's not jealous. A little bit later on, it actually says that for now, we see in a mirror dimly, but then we will see face to face. Can you imagine seeing God face to face? And then it says there will be no more night, for the Lord will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever, paralleling the day and night of creation and Zechariah's prophecy that we saw in the video. And as we reign and reign forever, we fulfill what God intended all along in Genesis for us to have say over things in the right way with him. Revelation here is an intricate system of completions, and that is what the experience of heaven will be like. But let's look at these final three completions as we look back at verse 5 here for the rest of our time. It says, And night will be no more, for they will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Night will be no more. Can you imagine a world without night? Now, during our Christmas Eve services, we're going to hear a message about why Jesus came at night. And so I'm not going to steal the thunder of that. Come back for that. But night is a symbol of a lot of things that we do not like. In Scripture, night symbolizes evil. It symbolizes death. It symbolizes suffering and pain and sin and the darkest aspects of life that oppose God. Can you imagine a world without any of that? Night will be no more. When night is no more, we will live in a world that is free of depression. When night is no more, we will live in a world that is free of shootings. We will live in a world free of racism. It will be a world free of injustice. It will be free of running and hiding. It will be free of rejection. It will be a world free of guilt and shame. It will be a world free of corruption, a world free of mental illness. It will be a world free for the need of orphanages. It will be a world free of worry. It will be a world free of death, a world free of crying, a world free of of fear, a world free of ever feeling insecure. It will be a world free of getting sick, a world free of abuse. It will be a world free of blindness. It will be a world free of loneliness. When there is no more night, we will experience a world of freedom. Night will be no more. What a gift this promise is to us. Now, one of the great things that we see when we look at the Bible in big terms like this is that if we look back at Genesis 3, here with the fall, we learn that if suffering has a beginning, then suffering must also have an ending. If suffering has a beginning, it must also have an ending. If your suffering had a beginning, then it must also have an ending. Your night will be no more. Your night will be no more. My brothers and sisters, whatever you're going through right now, may you take heart, may you find hope in the truth that God's not done yet. Amen? Amen. Night will be no more. They will need no lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light. Now, can you imagine never having to change a light bulb ever again? Or ever getting sunburned? Can you picture a world in which you never have to wait under the humming fluorescent lights of a hospital room? 
In this completion, there will be no need of a lamp or no need of the sun, for God will be our light. Now, when we think of God as our light, we shouldn't think of this like incredibly bright, blinding light, like the light that blinded Paul when he was on the Damascus Road and Jesus spoke to him and it knocked him on to his, off his feet. Instead, we should try and picture the most luminous, radiant, colorful light you've ever seen. It's the light that brings out the fullness of color. Imagine seeing red that is really red. Imagine seeing blue that bursts with blue. And beyond the colors, we'll see the best that we have ever seen in other people. As we are gathered together as a community around God as our light. It is going to be the most ultimate sense of belonging you have ever experienced. Can you imagine a world where you never feel left out? Can you imagine a world in which you never feel uncomfortable? Can you imagine a world in which you never have to feel relationally awkward ever again? That's good news for me, I'll say. Can you imagine that kind of belonging? And not only will we see the beauty of everything and everyone reflected in the glory of God's shining light, but we will also know fully. We will be enlightened to the truth that we've never been able to grasp. We will be enthralled with the brilliance that we can only describe now as the mystery of God. Reality will come into focus for us with Christ as our radiant light. We will know fully as we are fully known. Night will be no more, for the Lord God will be our light, and we will reign forever and ever with him. Now, one of the most common questions I ever hear from people is, well, what are we going to do all that time when we're in heaven? What are we going to do? Will it be like a constant worship service with babies playing harps and floating on clouds everywhere? Will the chorus of the worship song, I could sing of your love forever, be sung on repeat for like forever? If we picture like that, I can imagine why heaven wouldn't be that interesting to you. Many, many church experiences aren't that heavenly either, sad to say. But here in this passage, we are told what we're going to be doing. We will reign with God forever and ever. Now, this word, understanding this is a little complicated, but I hope you would track with me here as I try to explain this as best as I can. The word reign is loaded with the idea of the kingdom of God, which Jesus says is at hand and is still coming. And it's what Jesus talks about the most, the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is the range of God's effective will. It's where what God wants done is done. As we saw when we looked at Genesis 1, we've each been given a domain in which we have a genuine say over what happens. And that genuine say is what we could call our kingdom. Having a say like this is an aspect of what it means for us to be made in God's image. We have real power, real freedom, and real responsibility. So when God placed people in the garden, they were given the authority to reign with God in that specific domain. When they united what they wanted with what God's wanted, things function at their highest level in their most true sense. And that happens when we do what God wants done. When we do what God wants done, we help to answer the prayer that Jesus teaches us to pray. Lord, may your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But everything went wrong as we saw when people chose to build our kingdoms for our sake instead of for God's. The result is that we live lives that are number, debtor, and more compromised than God ever intended. 
But when Jesus returns to redeem and to save us for reigning with him forever and ever, we will work with him freely and powerfully in the creation and in the governance of good. We will fulfill the very purposes for what we were made for, all of us, uniquely, meaningfully, and endlessly satisfyingly. Can you imagine finding that kind of satisfaction in your work? God is going to be putting us at work to do what makes us most alive. Because God is most glorified when we are most fully alive. So what makes you come alive? Imagine getting to do that endlessly and, and forever and eternity with him and it having it only get better. Now, while my description of what we'll be doing in heaven is surely inadequate for just how incredible it will be, be assured something good is on the way. But if this glorious future awaits us, why doesn't God just come on back right now? I mean, what in the world is God waiting for? I think about that a lot. Why doesn't he just come back now? Why must we continue to experience heartbreak and pain and disease and rejection? Why must we continue waiting? Well, one of the things I found about waiting is that waiting is not so much about God robbing us of time. Waiting is God giving us time. Waiting is God giving us time. Which means waiting is not so much of an obligation as it is an opportunity. And if it's an opportunity, then we have to ask the question, what is this time for? What is this time for right now? Let me offer a couple thoughts about what this period of waiting that we're in between redemption and completion, what this time is for. First, it's for training for reigning. It's for training for reigning. Now, I first heard this phrase, training for reigning, from the person I quote most often when I'm doing anything that I'm doing. And you might have a guess who that is. Any guesses out there? Hey, you guys are good. Dallas Willard, of course. And uh, he says that all of our lives are for training. Training to be the people of God that he intended for us to be all along. People like Jesus who lived the way that Jesus would live if he was us. In his book, The Divine Conspiracy, Willard contends that prayer is what trains us to reign. Now, rather than quote Dallas, I attempted to put what he said in my own words, but it was taking me pages to put in the words that only took him a paragraph. So I think you'd prefer a paragraph. Here's what Dallas says about what this means. Prayer as kingdom praying, praying that God's kingdom would come and his will be done, is an arrangement explicitly instituted by God in order that we as individuals may count and count for much as we learn step by step how to govern, to reign with him in his kingdom. To enter and to learn this reign is what gives the individual life its significance. Prayer, skipping down, is above all a means of forming character. It combines freedom and power with service and love. What God gets out of our lives, and indeed what we get out of our lives, is simply the person we become. It is God's intention that we should grow into the kind of person he could empower to do what we want to do. Then we are ready to reign forever and ever. So what God gets out of our lives, how our lives make a difference, is by who we become. God wants us to become like Jesus. It's not only what brings him the most glory, but becoming like Jesus 
is what enables you and me and all of us to live most fully alive. It doesn't matter how many great things you accomplish or how many high-level degrees you earn. If you don't become the right kind of person, your life will make very little kingdom difference. So prayer is the beginning place of how we can train ourselves to reign as people like Jesus with Jesus. And when we are like Christ, we will want the very best things we could ever want. And that's what God wants. When we want what he wants, our kingdoms become united with his. And that's when we're ready to reign forever and ever. But we don't have to wait for Jesus to come for, his, for us to begin this work now. We can start answering that prayer. Lord, may your kingdom come and will be done here in Boston as it is in heaven by listening to him, by following him, by getting in on what he's doing. Prayer is what enables us to do this. So this time of waiting is first, training for reigning, to become the kind of people who naturally do what Jesus does. And then secondly, this time of waiting is for inviting others to live life with God right now. It's for shining his light so that everyone, everywhere can know Christ. Near the end of Revelation 22 and verse 17, it says, And let the one who hears say, Come. And let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who desires the water of life, come. It's without price. God's great invitation is that we would all come to his waters and find life and life to the fullest. Everything will live where the river goes. He invites us to be inviters of the great invitation, to tell everyone, So what in the world is God waiting for? Well, what if God is waiting for the world? What if he is waiting for all of us to have an opportunity to come to him? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son so that whoever would believe and trust in him would never perish but find life and life everlasting. Maybe God is waiting for the world to change. In the weekly devotional you'll receive when you head out the doors here in just a few moments, you'll read these words from 2 Peter 9, which say, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. God is giving everyone time so that we can follow him and repent. To repent simply means to review your plans for living and to base your life on the remarkable opportunity that comes in following Christ. Perhaps God is waiting for some of you right now, wherever you are on any of our campuses. Perhaps right now, he's giving you the chance to base your life on what matters most. Maybe you've waited long enough to follow him. Maybe you've just been stalling, thinking you'll get around to it another time. Perhaps right now is the time to follow him. He has so much in store for you, so much in store for us, and he is not done yet. And brothers and sisters, believe it. No matter what you've done, God is not done with you yet. He's not done with you. Maybe right now is the moment he's giving you the opportunity to whisper the words or shout them out. Jesus, forgive me for ignoring you. Forgetting, forgive me for putting you off and choosing to live for myself instead of for you. I believe your way is better. I'm choosing now and always to follow you. 
Maybe you need to make that prayer right now. Maybe God's tugging at your heart to pray that. So what is this time of waiting for? It's first, training for reigning. And secondly, it's for inviting others to live life with God right now. And that invitation has been extended to all of us. May God give us all the courage to respond. But while this life and this time might feel like it's going on endlessly and it's never, ever going to stop, this is only the beginning. If we take another look at God's story, what we begin to see that logically... God's story begins with a beginning in creation. But God's story does not end with an ending. It ends with a beginning. The beginning is the ending. My ending, your ending, is your beginning. C.S. Lewis says at the end of the Chronicles of Narnia, the very last words of those great books, he says, that this life, the thousands or billions of years that we've been around, is only the cover and the title page of the real story. The real story is yet to begin, and when it does, every chapter is going to get better than the chapter before. Can you imagine every chapter of life getting endlessly and endlessly better? How alive we will be when, while we are reigning with God. God is not done yet. So this Advent season and always, when you see that golden hour light streaming through your windows, may you remember that God might just be smiling at you. May you remember that this is a foretaste of just what's to come. And may you open up the aperture of your heart and your lives wide open so that his life might stream in. And may you come to the water and receive the great life that he is offering and remember the promise that night will be no more for the Lord God will be our light and we will reign with him forever and ever. God's not done yet. Amen? Amen? Let's pray together. God, thank you for this amazing hope and truth that you give us through your word. Forgive us for how we get so consumed with what's right before us that we forget to look big, to look wide, to be in awe of wonder of what you're doing and to remember that you are coming back. Thank you for this Advent season that reminds us not only that you have come, but that you will fulfill your promise and come again and that you will set the world right and that you will make all things the way they are supposed to be. And God, in that meantime, we pray that we would be participators in that, that you would help us to help your kingdom come and your will be done here in Boston as it is in heaven. And I pray for each and every person here, God, that they might know you and desire to get in on that as best as they can. Give them the courage and all of us the courage to say yes to your marvelous gift and invitation to follow you. So Jesus, we entrust all that we have to you. Have your way. Come quickly. And may we never lose sight of the fact that you're not done yet. We pray this all in the great name of Jesus. And everybody said together, amen. Amen. amen.